time with, together with family, and so I appreciate the opportunity to be away. Kenny filled in for me. Kenny's doing such a terrific job. Uh, Y'all got to experience some of that this past week, and so we're so thankful to him and for his ministry, he and Carrie here among us. We are in a verse-by-verse study of the book of Philippians. If you have your Bibles, you can flip over to Philippians chapter 2. We are going today to, uh, to look at one of my favorite passages in all the Bible, Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 5. If you would, let's stand together for the reading from God's Word, Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 5. Today I'm going to be reading from the NIV version. Here we go. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be that of the same as that of Christ Jesus. You may be seated. Thank you so much. All right, so we're going to get that up on the screen here for you in just a moment. And uh, I want to begin at verse 5, if we may. I know we, we'll get back to verses 3 and 4 here in just a little bit, but let's start with verse 5. It says that your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. And so it kind of made me ask, well, what exactly is this attitude that Jesus had? And so what we discover in the following verses uh, of chapter 2 is that Jesus demonstrates this particular attitude that he has. And so I want to walk through the verses that follow, the ones we just read, and see if you can identify from how Jesus is behaving, from the decisions that he's making, if you can identify what his attitude is. All right, fair enough? All right, so here we go. Let's start with verse 6. It says, "...who being in very nature God..." Now again, the Scriptures are talking about the Lord Jesus here, saying that Jesus was in the very nature of God. That is, that Jesus and God the Father are of the same essence are co-eternal, are are co-equal, this idea of the Trinity, of that God is triune, that he's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but they're all made of the same stuff, kind of like our water, ice, and steam um, illustration, where they're all made of the same H2O molecules, and yet exist in different forms simultaneously. And so that's what we have here in the scriptures, is referring to the fact that Jesus is divine, that he is God in the flesh. Um, that Jesus, being in very nature God, did not regard equality with God or consider equality with God as something to be grasped. Now, in the Greek term, that word that's literally translated there, grasp, means to clutch a hold of something, to be tight-fisted about something. And so he says, look, my equality with God, the, my, the fact that I could be glorified, the fact that I should be worshipped, he didn't view this as a t- in a tight-fisted way, something that he had to cling to or hold on to with white knuckles. Rather, Jesus was willing to step down off his throne He was willing to be denied worship for a season, and that he was willing to let go of his rights as God. Verse 7, but he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. In the Greek, the term that's used there is literally the word slave, uh, that Jesus became like a slave, being made in human likeness. So what was it that Jesus has just stepped down from? He stepped down from his throne in heaven, right? He stepped down from being worshipped by the angels, being worshipped by the hosts of heaven, and he's come down to earth, and he's now, and what is it that he has um, stepped down to become? He's become a human being. He's taken the form of human flesh. God became man, John chapter 1 and verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Verse 8, he was found in appearance as a man. That is that the creator of the universe, think about this, the creator of the universe became as fragile as a little baby in Mary's arms. Pretty remarkable to think about what Jesus was willing to do. The Bible says that he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Now, the question that I raised here at the front end of us going to these verses was, what was the attitude that Jesus demonstrates? 
if by these actions, stepping down from his throne and glory, stepping down from being worshipped for a season, being really willing to relinquish his glory for a season, what was that attitude that's demonstrated in all of that? Would we call that sacrificial? Would we call that selfless? How about humble? And so we can see all these characteristics in these things. I think in stepping down off of his throne in glory, Jesus personifies those characteristics, that he's sacrificial, that he's selfless, and that he's humble. And he shows his willingness to, um, to act in that way. You see, Jesus uses, or Paul uses the example of Jesus to drive home a point. And the point that Paul is trying to make to the Philippian church is this, that as followers of Jesus, that is, as imitators of Jesus, that the Christians in Philippi should be acting like Jesus acts. They should be demonstrating the same kind of behaviors, being sacrificial, being selfless, and being humble. Paul views these as, look, this is how our Lord, the creator of the universe, acted toward us. So just the same, we ought to act this way toward one another. Have the same attitude, he says in verse 5, as that which was in Christ Jesus. So Paul holds up the example of Jesus as a motivator to the Philippians, to get them acting this way. Make sense? Right? Okay. I'm glad somebody was paying attention. That's good. All right, very good. So that's our treatment of this text for today. And so that means it's time for us to ask the question we ask every week around here. What difference does all this make to my life? You say, Gordon, I thought we were going to talk about verses 3 and 4. Well, we are. And the reason why I held off on that is because verses 3 and 4 actually tell us how to act this way. They tell us how to, to, to put some, show us how to put some handles on being sacrificial and selfless and humble, what that looks like in reality um, and, and how we relate to other people. So let's take a look at verses 3 and 4 together. Get back with me. Verse 3, we heard Paul say in verse 5 that our attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, and we know now what that attitude was. We've seen Jesus demonstrate it. Here Paul is asking the Philippians to now share that attitude toward one another. Verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition, he says. Do nothing from selfish ambition. In the Greek, what's translated there as selfish ambition is the word areatheon, and it is often used when referring to politicians. Selfish ambition. This is someone, I'm not trying to make jokes. This is someone who is trying to, uh, or who's doing what they're doing for their own benefit. And the Greeks saw this amongst their politicians, and they saw how the senators, right, how the senators acted toward one another when they walk in a room with their pomp and they want everybody to stand up for them, that sort of thing. It means that you're trying to make a name for yourself. It means that you're trying to live in such a way uh, to self-glorify so then you get a street named after yourself somewhere, right? Like that's the pinnacle of success that I finally arrived. Um, Back to verse 3. Paul says that's the wrong attitude. Here's the right attitude. Um, I'm sorry, missed one there. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Verse 3. Vain conceit means that you're stuck on yourself. Vain conceit that means that you are trying to make a name for yourself. That's vanity, uh, Paul says. You know, if you're going to make a name for yourself, then just live in such a way that the way that you live makes a name for you, rather than going out there and trying to stir up um, attention for yourself. So that's vain conceit. Back to verse 3, Paul says, that's the wrong attitude, here's the right attitude. He says, but in humility, consider others as better than yourself. That's kind of our first handle, our first practical look at what is sacrificial, selfless, and humble, what does it look like for us? In, in our day-to-day lives, he says, consider others as better than yourselves. Now, I think it's really important to take a time out here and examine that phrase, because the phrase itself can be a little bit misleading. 
To think of others as better than yourselves is not literally by estimation to say that somebody's better than me and to therefore put myself down. That's self-degradation. That's false humility. And uh, honestly, as I'm kind of looking around at what's going on in culture today, I see a lot of that happening, where people are trying to step down and make somebody else, to make somebody else feel better. Like, I'll diminish myself by estimation in my own eyes for the purpose of making somebody else feel like they're important and special. That's self-degradation. That's false humility. Um, to think of others as better than ourselves is the simple act of caring for somebody else. That's what Paul has in mind here. It's not putting myself down so that somebody else can feel better about themselves. It's coming to somebody who has need and showing that I care about them. That, that's, that's the idea that Paul has here. Mothers do this all the time. Moms, you know all about putting the needs of others ahead of your own. Um, moms are, sacri are sac sacrificial for their children. Guys, we try to do this. Um, and we give them an A for effort, right? We're not always as good as she is at this, but we certainly do try. Children do this for their aging parents. Neighbors do this for putting the needs of others before their own. You know, just about a month ago, a couple of families from our church were heading down uh, toward to Florida, and uh, they were in a little traveling caravan, a couple of trucks, and they were both carried, uh, toting fifth wheels down to South Florida uh, for a week of vacation. And they got into South Georgia, and one of the trucks broke down. And it was something that they just could not fix on the side of the road. It was just impossible. So it kind of looked like vacation plans were, they were over. And so some folks back up here got word of this, hopped in their two trucks, because they needed to take a, one down for them to hitch up and go on with their trip, and then they needed another truck to bring the injured vehicle back with. And so that's what happened. Two of the folks from up here, their friends, part of our church family, drove down there, took two trucks to them, gave them a truck they could use for the week, a, a, one that wasn't injured, and then put the injured truck on the back of a flatbed trailer, drove five, six hours back up here. So they just lost a good 10, 11 hours of their day to bring that, the injured truck back up here. Friends, is that not the embodiment of what this verse is talking about? Right? Sometimes we over-spiritualize the Bible. We think that Paul means that we have to you know, be in intercessory prayer for our neighbor, that we have to be in intercessory prayer for our family. We have to be in intercessory prayer for, for, our, for our loved one. And friends, intercessory prayer is great. Don't get me wrong. Intercessory prayer is great. But Paul has something, I think the scope of what Paul has in mind here is much bigger than just spiritual acts. Putting the needs of others ahead of our own. Sometimes in humility, considering others as better than yourselves means driving five hours to meet a friend and hauling their broken truck back home. Paul continues, verse 4, Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Did you notice that what Paul does not say there? Paul does not say, he does not say, don't look to your own interests. I think the sadist in our community perhaps would want to say, no, we must always beat ourselves into submission. We must always deny ourselves. And that's not what Paul says here. He does not say, don't look to your own interests. Paul says you should look out for your own interests, but in the midst of planting your own fields, in the midst of washing your own car, in the midst of teaching and discipling your own kids, let's remember to keep an eye out for the needs of others as well. Notice the Bible's not saying dismiss your needs. 
don't ever have a good time. It's not what the scriptures are saying here. It's saying in addition to looking out for your own needs, also consider the needs of others. Please do not hear the Bible saying that we have to self-renunciate, that we have to abandon our own needs and responsibilities. The Bible does not say that. But the Bible does say that we are to, in addition to looking out for our own needs, consider the needs of others. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. I mean, friends, there were times when the Lord Jesus had to go up on a mountain and get away from everybody and pray. He was physically drained, he was emotionally drained, he was spiritually drained, and he needed some time with God the Father to replenish, to rejuvenate. And so just the same, friends, we, do need, to, we need to do some self-care. It's a part of how God designed us. We need that Sabbath time in our life. We take a break from things, and we recover, and then we're ready to tackle the world's problems afterward. I'd like to close out this morning with a story about a fellow named William Gladstone. i got a picture of him for you here. He looks like a very austere Englishman, and then he was. Um, William Gladstone uh, was the prime minister of England on four different times between the years of 1868 and 1892. Um, William Gladstone was considered uh, one of the, a a true statesman, uh, perhaps one of the greatest statesmen that England had ever known. And he was also a very fine Christian man. He was known as a leader within the Church of England. Now, on one particular occasion, Gladstone was facing one of the greatest crises of his political life. He was about ready to deliver the next morning, this is late in the night, he was about ready to deliver the next morning a speech to the House of Commons that would shape a lot of the public policy and the kind of how England was operating at that time. Um, And so he was preparing the speech before the House of Commons and was going to drive a lot of what uh, England would become in the coming years. He was up the night before, late into the night, about 2 a.m., working on his speech, and a knock came at the door. And it was a lady, uh, mother of a poor little crippled boy, who was dying in a tenement house in the London slums. And the butler answered the door late at the night, late at night, and she begged the butler. She said, can I please speak to Mr. Gladstone? And the butler said, ma'am, I'm sorry. He's busy with the affairs of state. He's been up all night. Uh, He's got a really busy day tomorrow. There's no way that he could possibly see you. And so she just continued to plead with the butler and plead with the butler. And finally, the butler agreed, look, just give me a message and I'll take it to Mr. Gladstone. And if he wants to do anything with it, he can. So uh, she handed the butler a message, and this is the message that she had. My little boy is dying. Some of my neighbors have told me that you're a godly man, and that if you were to come and spend some time with my son, it would bring him some hope, perhaps some comfort. Mr. Gladstone, would you please come? Well, the butler took the message delivered it to Mr. Gladstone, perhaps a bit reluctantly, perhaps a bit coldly. And Mr. Gladstone, upon seeing it, 2 a.m. in the morning, big day the next day, as soon as he saw it, set his quill down, got up from his seat, got dressed, went down and met the lady at the front door, and she led him through the streets of London to her home. When they arrived at her house, he found the little boy lying there in the room, dying, and he stayed there the entire night. Could have just popped in, wished him well, headed back home, 
but Gladstone chose to stay the entire night. He prayed with the little boy to receive Christ. He held the little boy's hand through the night as he suffered in pain. And finally, as the sun was coming up in the morning, Gladstone closed his eyes in death. Gladstone wept with this little boy's mother. He comforted her with the knowledge that her son had put his faith and trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of his sins and that he was, the story touches me, that he was spending eternity in heaven. And then as the sun began to shine, Gladstone left the house, went back home. And I'm quoting from him now. This is something he told a friend of his later that day. He said, I am the happiest man in the world today. He said, I am filled with the peace of God. A few hours later, after being up all night, he had a disorganized, unfinished manuscript in his hand, and he walked into the House of Commons, and historians say that he delivered what they believe to be the greatest speech of his life. Again, that story touches me. And it touches me because this is the kind of example of sacrificial selflessness, humility, that Paul and Jesus demonstrated. Here is a poor little slum boy who the world would never know. His name would not appear in the papers the next day. He could offer no advancement to William Gladstone's career. He certainly wasn't going to help him uh, write that speech and get prepared. Nobody even knew who this little boy was. In fact, it was just the opposite. By going and administering to the needs of this little boy and this family, I mean, Gladstone was leaving his policy decisions that he needed to wrap up and finish undone. He was leaving his manuscript and everything unfinished and spending the whole night out. I mean, this could have cost Gladstone his entire political career, and it certainly could have cost the nation of England. No one would have blamed Gladstone if he had said at the door, ma'am, I just don't have time. Ma'am, I, I, I'm not even the right guy for the job. Perhaps we ought to find a priest. Perhaps we ought to find a preacher. And, and, and you go with the pastor. I'm just not even suited for this task. No one would have blamed him for saying, let's find somebody else. He could have reasoned those things. But in putting the needs of others first, and in humility regarding this little boy as better than himself, the prime minister of England left his speech undone he laid his agenda to the side, hastened to the side of this little boy, a little fellow not much known to the world, but precious to the heart of God. And that little fellow became the object of Gladstone's focus that night. Praise God that he did. You know, as I read through this story and interacted with it over the week, it jumps out at me as an example of Sacrificial living, selflessness, humility, true humility. And friends, if in this story we don't see those qualities, I don't know that we'll ever see it. My hope this morning 
is that we in this body, if we could perfect this attitude of doing nothing from selfish ambition, but with humility regarding others as better than ourselves, each of us not looking only to our own interests, but also to the interests of others. Friends, if we could perfect that attitude in our life, gone would be the arguments between husbands and wives. Gone would be the, the fighting, infighting between families. Gone would be the strife between relationships at work. Gone would be the bickering and the jockeying for position. Gone would be the murmuring and the backbiting. Gone would be our impatience and our complacency. Friends, my hope this morning is that we would come together and earnestly ask God to forgive us for any hard-heartedness within and to flood us with a sense of godly sorrow if we have overlooked the needs of others. The Bible is calling us to this way of life, sacrificial, selfless, humble. And in turn, that we would know what it means to humble ourselves like Jesus did, to put the needs of others ahead of our own. Let's pray. Most gracious God, we thank you for speaking to us today. We thank you for demonstrating through your own life how you want us to be. God, may these qualities become such a part of us, Lord, that when there are needs around us that we just pass by so carelessly and with cavalierly, Lord, each day, or that we would begin to see the needs and the hurt everywhere we go just like you did. Lord, you didn't make a great name for yourself by writing books, giving tremendous speeches. Lord, you made a great name for yourself by humbling, becoming the, a slave, taking on the form of a human being, becoming obedient even to death on a cross. So that one day, every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that you are Lord. Lord, in these quiet moments today as we celebrate your broken body, as we celebrate your shed blood and the quietness of communion, God, speak to us about how you want us to live. Show us the better way and may we be yielded to your way of living. We pray these things in Christ's holy name. Amen. We invite you now to take a few moments to share the communion elements, and then we'll close out with a song.